What's up, Kentucky Hikers? It's Media Mike here with your Kentucky Hiker Project podcast for Thursday, July 14th, 2022. This episode is benefiting Kentucky Natural Lands Trust, a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to expand our public lands. We're going to help them out with a thousand bucks so they can add another acre for the good guys. That's us. On today's episode, we're going to talk national forests. Last week, we hiked 35 miles and 10,000 feet of elevation gain on our trip to White Mountain National Forest in, Nat- in New Hampshire. Uh, we summited four 4,000 footers, which that's a big thing up in that region. Uh, we did Mounts Monroe, Washington, Jackson, and Pierce, which are all in the presidential range, which is one of the most spectacular places in the eastern half of the U.S. And uh, of course, we mixed in plenty of waterfalls and smaller hikes with great views uh, on our kind of down days, so to speak. Uh, White Mountain National Forest is easily my favorite hiking region outside of Kentucky. Uh, it's lush, green, physical, uh, beautiful. And I love all the local businesses around the region uh, that are just so great uh, to visit, especially after a long day of hiking uh, big mountains. Uh, Across my visits to the area, I continue to be impressed with the forest management practices there um, in comparison to our own very much loved Daniel Boone National Forest. So let's kind of back up and start at the beginning. Um, Both national forests have their origins in what's called the Weeks Act, which was signed into law in 1911. Uh, by President William Howard Taft of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, This law is perhaps the most important piece of conservation legislation in the history of the country and thus far has placed over 188 million acres into our public lands inventory. If you compare that to the national parks at 85 million acres, uh, the total in these United States over just these two types of lands is over a quarter billion acres, not to mention all the state parks and forests, nature preserves, wildlife refuges, Um, wildlife management areas, and so many more. Uh, All sorts of different uh, lands, public lands out there. And so we can thank this guy. His name is John Wingate Weeks from Massachusetts, who uh, found his inspiration from the act, in fact, in the White Mountains. Um, That's where he and his family vacation, and it's still a favorite vacation spot for uh, people from Massachusetts. When you're up there, uh, you look in the parking lot, you see plenty of Massachusetts plates. Uh, it's a short, you know, two-hour drive, kind of like uh, me going down to Red River Gorge. And so while Weeks had no experience in agriculture, geology, forestry, or pretty much anything outside of business, um, he had seen the destruction uh, as a result of the logging industry in the White Mountains. And so he was kind of like the right guy to pick because at the time there was a lot of push-pull between, you know, why should the, why should the federal government spend money on uh, protecting forests? And there was uh, one guy who was the Speaker of the House who even said, not a single cent uh, for scenery. And so that was his stand on it. And so if you can uh, fast forward to today, I mean, that guy was off just by a little bit. The tourism alone is certainly uh, much more value than what the timber had. Anyway, um, so he was, so this guy, uh, John Weeks, was in charge of, you know, trying to figure out a way uh, to establish national forests. And the biggest hurdle at the time Um, was something known as states' rights. And so as we're all keenly aware now with the latest SCOTUS decisions, um, states' rights are guaranteed by the Constitution, and they can be difficult to overcome. So Weeks did his thing and eventually came to the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which basically says no state's actions can impede commerce among the many states. And that was the centerpiece of his legislation. The Weeks Act was created not to preserve our forests or to create timber reserves. It was actually to protect commerce on navigable waterways, commerce that was deeply and destructively impacted by the depletion of our forests. See, logging back in the day was messy business. 
Entire swaths of forest would be leveled to stumps and dirt with trees cut and then floated down streams and rivers. In our own Daniel Boone National Forest, uh, loggers would wait for spring flooding to move their timber downstream on smaller waterways. And then that, of course, would create log jams and they would leave behind mountains and hillsides that uh, were ripe for erosion. And, uh, and consequently, tons of flooding uh, afterwards. In fact, in, I believe it was in 1907, leading into this legislation, uh, the entire town of Pittsburgh uh, was completely flooded. And that was kind of the, the moment when a lot of people uh, in Congress had to kind of had a little change of heart about protecting these waterways. So Weeks kind of figured it out. And he made, uh, he made the Commerce uh, Clause the centerpiece. And he was able to garner support for that bill uh, that eventually passed the House. It was modified in the Senate. And eventually it was signed by President Taft. What's interesting here is that the objective of the Weeks Act was to protect commerce by protecting waterways that required healthy forests. So in the end, the ultimate goal of the Weeks Act, the action of the act, so to speak, was to establish massive tracts of forests encompassing the headwaters of major rivers. So in 1918, White Mountain National Forest was created. Uh, about uh, 19 years later, in 1937, Cumberland National Forest was established, and it was later renamed Daniel Boone National Forest, the same one that we know and love today. So fast forward a century, and uh, you know White Mountain National Forest currently uh, is around 800,000 acres, with Daniel Boone National Forest just a little bit smaller at over 700,000 acres. So they're essentially the same size. But check this out. The Whites host more than 6 million visitors annually, Meanwhile, Daniel Boone only sees about one-sixth that number, mostly concentrated in Red River Gorge. And that's kind of the hot issue right now in Kentucky when it comes to hiking in our outdoor lands. Um, you've got a piece of land that is incredibly gorgeous with more beautiful outdoor scenes per acre and per mile of trail <clears throat> there in Red River Gorge than anywhere in White Mountain National Forest. Truly, if you hike the red and then you hike the whites, you'll know um, without any doubt that our own Red River Gorge is hands down winter when it comes to special scenes. Of course, the whites are more majestic because they're actual mountains and the gorge is a gorge, so there's that. But uh, this is Kentucky Hiker Project podcast, so I'll keep my bias. Anyway, um, so why do I pay special attention to the whites and how they're managed compared to the red? Um, mainly it's because they're similar in size, um, Daniel Boone National Forest and White Mountain National Forest, um, but the visitation is just so much higher in the whites. And so uh, looking at that and how Forest Service manages that type of uh, uh, tract of land uh, could provide a lot of clues as to how things are going to evolve and change, specifically in Red River Gorge. Um, Forest Service in Daniel Boone is right now at the beginning stages of implementing a series of changes on how the gorge is managed. Um, this includes backcountry and frontcountry camping, fee structures, trail additions, applications for additional funding, um, trash disposal, and of course, crowd management and parking. So the whites can be instructive here because, um, you know, similar acreage, uh, but six times more visitors. And so as Red River Gorge and Daniel Boone National Forest sees increasing uh, visitation, um, the whites might uh, offer some clues. So there's a few things that I notice uh, every time I go up there. Um, first things first is fees. Uh, Daniel Boone has some fee areas in various recreation areas. It could be at a boat launch, a beach, or whatever. Um, but for the Red, it's free unless you're parking overnight. Uh, there's no day-use fees in Red River Gorge. And while it's a, a, you know, great as a consumer to have free access, it also means limited services. Um, essentially, you get what you pay for there. 
So forest service budgets are routine, routinely, you know, kind of laid to waste thanks to wildfires. And if you've noticed over the last few years, there's been a whole lot of wildfires. Um, and so if you're sitting back there and saying, I pay taxes and that's the only fee uh, that you're going to get from me, you're also saying at the same time, I'll take what my tax dollars can afford and that ain't much. And so uh, nearly all major hiking areas rely heavily on partnerships. Um, Forest Service alone doesn't do all of this work and provide all of this great hiking and everything else that goes with it. Um, partnerships with local residents, regional citizens, county administrators, uh, state cabinets like the Transportation Cabinet here in Kentucky, those partnerships are all critically important. And then, of course, there are tons and tons of volunteers um, that take care of various areas. And so Friends of Red River Gorge, for example, is one such partner organization. Um, Red River Gorge Trail Crew is another partner organization. And so while Forest Service will lead a lot of that um, as far as, you know, hey, these are the objectives, these are things that need to be done, um, the execution of those details is largely left up to volunteers. So here's the deal. You can buy yourself an annual pass for the gorge for $50, or you can buy a three-day or a one-day pass if you're going to be camping overnight, which is very popular in the area. Uh, but in the Whites, it's $5 just about anywhere for day use. <clears throat> and so you pull up somewhere, it's going to be $5. You drop it into the little pay station. You know, it's kind of on the honor system there. And so I'm sure not everyone does. But, you know, ultimately, you can just pick up a $30 annual pass there. Um, in White Mountain National Forest, and so that's actually a great value. And so um, people routinely just stop into the visitor center there, you know, they pick up their annual pass, stick it on their car, and then they're good to go for a year. Um, and $30 for a year of entertainment in the outdoors is a tremendous value no matter how you slice it. So for anyone who's objecting to a $30 fee, um, I think that's uh, kind of ridiculous actually. So. So people pay it. Um, they pay it often up in the Whites, um, not so much in the Gorge. I'd, I'd probably wager that more than 90% of visitors to the Gorge pay exactly $0 to Forest Service on their visits. Um, you know, and that's a major lost opportunity to build additional infrastructure and add trails to the existing system. You know, and so with fees come services, and the more services, uh, the more fees you can pay in a particular area, more of that money actually stays in that home area as opposed to being distributed out to, say, California to file, fight wildfires. So uh, the next thing is the trash. Um, there's a big difference in trash between Red River Gorge and the Whites. Um, there's nearly zero trash in the Whites. I mean, everywhere we hiked, there was, I mean, uh, on nearly all the trails, <clears throat> you, you couldn't even see a speck of trash. Um, and there's also zero trash bins up there, um, which I found uh, to be fascinating. So, so ultimately, I think what it comes down to is trash cans attract trash. It's kind of a thing. So after seeing clean trails and parking lots in the whites year after year, I've come around to seeing the value in this kind of management of just eliminating trash bins. Uh, currently, managers in the red are proposing uh, centralized dumpsters in specific locations. Um, I'd love to see the elimination of those trash bins at trailheads because when there are no trash bins, there's a lot less trash that accumulates. Um, if you think about those fast food restaurants, they used to have overflowing trash cans outside by the drive-thru. Um, I haven't seen one out there in a while, and I think there's a good reason behind it. It's mainly because uh, trash cans attract trash, and ultimately there's not going to be a lot of people emptying those bins, and who wants to empty an overflowing bin anyway? Um, now, for... Developed camping areas, trash facilities, <clears throat> definitely needed. Um, a dumpster or two at the front of a campground is always needed because campers are living there. Um, they generate, obviously, a lot more trash. Day hikers, on the other hand, have a lot less trash um, that they carry with them. They can easily just pack it out, um, their little bits. And so, 
Um, day use areas, I, I don't see any need for trash bins there. Um, I feel like it just it just attracts more garbage uh, than anything else. Um, the other thing too is that there are signs absolutely everywhere uh, in the whites, pack it in, pack it out. And so just getting people into that type of, setting that as a cultural norm among uh, trail users and campground users, um, I think that's something that we have a long way to go with here in Kentucky, uh, but it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor. So, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, garbage, if you think about trail users in, in the red, as, well, actually all throughout Daniel Boone National Forest for that matter, the bulk of trash is sourced from dispersed campers, um, particularly uh, dispersed campers who are uh, drinking maybe a little bit too much, having a good time, and then just leaving an absolute mess behind. Um, every single time I've seen a big mess, it's usually come with a dozen or more beer cans, maybe a couple of broken bottles. Um, and also, you know, uh, I remember one time there were a few bottles of whiskey and I was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty heavy night. So anyway, so this kind of leads into camping. And so camping, um, dispersed camping, it's, it's a really big thing in both the whites and the red. Um, the difference is dispersed camping is found all over the place in the red. Um, you know, while it's spread out in the whites. And so the red is actually a really small area. Uh, Acreage-wise, it might only be, so the official geological area is maybe 30-some-odd thousand acres. And then if you include the, what we traditionally think of as the red, it's maybe 80,000 acres. And so when you think about 80,000 acres compared to 800,000 acres, um, there's a big difference there. And so the dispersed camping in the red, it's just there's a ton of sites uh, really close together. And then that's usually a, a recipe for some problems. So under the latest proposal in the red, uh, dispersed camping will be expanded and sites will be reservable on recreation.gov. Um, this is, you know, sp this, I think this is pretty much spot on based on the incredible number of illegal dispersed camping sites um, that Forest Service <coughs> actually puts the number on that at over a thousand. Um, in Red River Gorge alone. So if you can imagine a thousand tiny little illegal campsites that are, you know, either within, you know, 300 feet of the trail or within 100 feet of rock shelters um, all throughout the gorge. So a thousand is an awful lot. Um, by concentrating the dispersed camping and putting it on a reservation system, uh, it makes camping in this manner, which is my preferred uh, manner of camping, it makes it more accessible and it also holds users more accountable. Um, not to mention that it'll reduce the number of barren dirt spots out there when hiking on the trails. And so if you've been out there hiking, uh, you know that there are plenty of these little campsites that are um, right there in eyesight. And the 300 foot rule is really just to have people out of sight. That's really what 300 feet is all about. Um, and if you ever uh, go down to the gorge on a Friday night late and had your butt pucker up just a little bit, when you drive by and see all the parking lots are full, campsites have been taken, uh, you know a reservation system would be nice. It's also a great way um, just to you know, ensure that you have people paying to use uh, the area and that also creates additional fee revenue for the Forest Service. And finally, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about crowds, all right? So crowds, the whites are crowded, uh, but they are well managed. And at no time do I ever think, man, this sucks with all these people, except maybe at the top of Mount Washington. Um, but there's a road and a train that both get you to the top. So that's kind of to be expected. But outside of that one spot at the summit of Mount Washington, um, I never really feel like it's, it's all that crowded, um, you know, on any of the big hikes that we do. Now, there are plenty of, uh, you know, riverside pull-offs and that kind of stuff and uh, little entertainment spots like that. 
And so those are always crowded, but that's not really kind of my, my deal anyway. I like to hike deep in the forest. But anyway, um, when I think of the red on a weekend, however, uh, I immediately think uh, maybe we should go to Big South Fork or Pine Mountain or really anywhere else but here. Um, fact is, the trail system is relatively small in the gorge uh, with around 70 or 80 miles of marked trails in the official system. Um, you get maybe uh, twice that number you know, on unofficial trails. And so the, the trail system itself, when, it come, when, it, when you're talking about the regular you know, average visitor, um, it's relatively small compared to the crowd. And they, it depends on the estimate you read, but somewhere between a half a million or a million visitors each year across only three seasons. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of traffic on a pretty small trail system. So, you know, so the question is, what do you do about crowds, right? Um, they're not going away. So let's just start with that. Um, the Reds, it's an amazing outdoor space. Uh, it's got over 100 natural arches, uh, plenty of seasonal waterfalls that are on and off the trail. Um, it has more beautiful overlooks uh, per mile than just about any other part of the eastern United States. And so I don't see the crowds going away ever. Um, so Forest Service has a tough task here. You know, what do you do? Um, in economics, when you know, demand outstrips supply, you raise the price. In this case, you might mean, this might mean like gate fees, um, you know, other price controls uh, to limit crowds. Currently, it's parking tickets, so don't think that there aren't additional costs being paid by visitors. Um, but generally speaking, fees in hiking areas will never, ever increase enough to quote-unquote right-size crowds, uh, mainly because these are public lands and they need to remain accessible financially for everyone. But uh, that said, increased fee revenue for Forest Service can it can be put to good use by expanding parking and adding trails. It can also lead to establishing shuttle service with paved and marked spots um, that will likely be the long-term solution unless parking and trails can be substantially expanded uh, both north and south of the current trail footprint. <clears throat> In terms of cost, it's likely cheaper to install shuttle bus service and stops compared to paving new roads and adding more trails. And if we're talking super long-term, term as in uh, after I'm dead, the gorge could become a, a national park at some point, and that would require adding a loop road um, that en encircles the entire gorge area with trails, parking, and camping to go with it. Um, that's a huge ticket um, that's going to cost millions of dollars in construction, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. But if you want to talk about what isn't going to help crowds, uh, that's a new resort. So while it is appealing to politicians to put a stamp on a big ticket expansion, uh, I would submit that unless Forest Service management can get a ton more help expanding roads, parking, and trails, the same trails that attract visitors will be the poison pill that will sink a large-scale development like the one currently proposed. Fact is that while many visitors will stick around a resort like that, a strong majority um, will venture out of, their, out of these places. Um, so when parking isn't available, when they get to a trailhead or when trails are loud and crowded, um, resort guests will invariably, they'll fail to return. Uh, it's just not going to be a pleasant experience to go out there, you know, grab yourself a parking ticket or be frustrated driving around and not being able to find parking. And so, you know, you add in the influx of those visitors. I know it's something like 80 rooms or whatever it is. And so maybe you're talking an extra 240 something people per weekend. But, you know, you put an extra 80 cars out there on already uh, overcrowded uh, roads and parking lots, 
and that's just it's just not going to go great so ultimately the red is a small area <clears throat> in terms of acreage parking and trail mileage and while the whites have managed similar crowds beautifully um, the whites have superior infrastructure surrounding the area um, they have bigger and better roads better topography to provide places to park and longer hikes to spread out the crowds and so mountains lend themselves well uh, to larger crowds um, particularly when you have uh, a lot of great hiking spread out across uh, 800,000 acres so you know while there are some easy hikes in the whites that are stupid crowded um, that's kind of the nature of hiking anytime you have short easy hikes to beautiful places you're always going to be able to find a crowd there that's just kind of how it works when you look at the red um, the number of trails that are short easy and beautiful well that's uh nearly all of them okay and so it's actually even going out to hansen's point um, is five miles out and back which is you know an easy hike um, there's not a lot of elevation gain or loss it's just straight out the ridge and i call it the easiest five miles in the gorge and so it's not hard to see why there's a lot of visitation um, and there's a lot of crowds because none of the hiking in red river gorge is really all that tough most of it's pretty easy with the rare exception of say the rough trail um, or if you're doing a longer backpacking route or a full day of running out there so but a lot of i mean just the the nature of a gorge is you've got you know a deep carve out and then the surrounding topography around the gorge is you know it's just hills gentle hills not mountains <clears throat> so anyway um i'm heading down to red river gorge on uh, let's see or no what is this august the 8th i think it is for a community meeting yep monday the 8th at 6 30 uh, rrg united is doing some stuff there and so i'm going to go down and have a listen to kind of hear uh, kind of get a, a sense of the vibe down there um, as someone who is non-local i live in northern kentucky i can tell you that um, you know i'm happy to support uh, whatever the locals desire and it's mainly because i don't live there and um, and so i don't really like uh, going in and trying to tell people from a different area you know how to live or what to do and any of that kind of stuff uh, local determination um, self-determination is kind of like the key here and so if um, you know if the area is anti-resort then hey that sounds good to me um, and if they're pro-resort hey that's fine too you know at the end of the day um, I, you know red river gorge is a beautiful place i'll continue to go there and visit um, i'll just be doing it during the weekdays which is predominantly what i do now um, just to avoid uh, the crowds um, in addition, I do want to bring up one point here uh, as we close out, but <clears throat> dispersed um, camping is one thing. There's also this thing called dispersed tourism, and that's something that uh, has been getting a little more chatter lately. Um, if you think about uh, Daniel Boone National Forest, and let's say they get you know a million plus visitors a year, and half of that is going to one concentrated area across just 10% of the landmass, um, you know there are plenty of other options. Kentucky has over 2,000 natural arches uh, across uh, you know, the state. And so you can go to all parts of Daniel Boone National Forest and find something pretty awesome to go see. They're not always on marked trails. Plenty of these things are off, uh, off user trails and that kind of stuff. But that is also part of the charm and the beauty of hiking in Kentucky. Uh, Daniel Boone National Forest remains an open forest meaning that you can travel pretty much anywhere you please unless it is specified um, by Forest Service to stay on trail in a particular area. They may have some sensitive habitat or what, whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, 
you know, big resorts, big capital injections, that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't always see that working out very well, not for the resort and then also not for the local community. Um, and so we'll just kind of ha- have to wait and see how this goes. The one thing that I will say is that um, RRG United had, uh, makes a big point about um, local businesses and that kind of stuff. The one thing that is truly uh, outstanding and really refreshing about White Mountain National Forest is that across the entire 800,000 acres, you will find a ton of locally owned small businesses, restaurants, shops, all these other things, and you don't see a lot of franchises in the area. Um, There are certainly some hotels and that kind of stuff um, from major brands. There's, um, you know, there's different uh, grocery store chains and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, uh, when you're going out to eat, I mean, we went to every single business that we visited outside of the gas stations um, were local businesses, including the grocery store. So um, that's something that if you look at, I I would just, you know, if you get a chance to go up to the Whites, go up there, you know, just drive around, um, you know, hike a few hikes, check out the local businesses and that kind of stuff. Um, New Hampshire is an absolutely beautiful place. Um, their peak season is during the fall foliage, um, but the comparison between Kentucky, uh, Kentucky's Daniel Boone National Forest and White Mountain National Forest, it's pretty amazing. Um, so it would be kind of ideal to replicate what has been done in the Whites to preserve all the local communities, local businesses, and, um, and to really have a sustainable um, forest area. So anyway, so that's it for the podcast this week. Um, just a quick fundraising raising update. Uh, the total donated to Kentucky Natural Lands Trust now stands at a big old hundred bucks. That's a single Benjamin, and that's also about a tenth of an acre, and that puts us ten percent to goal. We also have a couple of new sponsors that'll be coming out over the next couple of podcasts, um, and so you get to learn more about them. Uh, this has been the Kentucky Hiker Project podcast, and if you'd like to sponsor an episode, submit an ad, or give a shout out to one of your fellow hikers, go to the podcast page at kentuckyhiker.org slash podcast and hit the sponsor and episode link. Um, I can write the ad copy or you can do it yourself. Thanks for listening and get out there and hike.